Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 13 this morning, and uh, I should be able to get you out of here before one. I'm just kidding. But Acts chapter 13, with a message entitled, Separated and Sent to Preach Salvation. Separated and sent to preach salvation. Once you're there, stand with me. We're going to read the word of God together. Acts chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Separate apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask you, Lord, to just speak to us. We know you have a message for us this morning, personally. And we pray that we would have ears to hear it, Lord and then hearts to obey it. Lord, remove the distractions and just speak intimately to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you could live a thousand lives, if God were to give you another thousand lives, uh, what would you spend them on? Some of you like to daydream, so this is the what-if scenario. If you had a thousand lives to live, what would you do with those thousand lives, you know? Um, it's a great question to think about. Some of us live in such a way that we're, man, if I had to do all over again, I would, and then you would list all these things. What would you do if God gave you more lives to live? Hudson Taylor, a missionary to inland China, answered this question in this way. He said, if I had a 1,000 pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? Hudson Taylor understood the most important thing that he could do with his life and any other lives that God would give him. We don't believe in reincarnation, by the way. But uh, if, if that were to happen, would it be to give it to Christ? to lay himself at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, it's yours. Do what you want to do with it, Lord. And in so doing, God would then separate and send him out. His heart would be for China. His life was dedicated to the Chinese people, inland China. In the 1800s, he, uh, late 1800s to early 1900s, he gave his complete life to China. Why? Because he gave his life to Jesus first. He understood that when I give my life to Christ, that there's a call on my life. And then I'm gonna take that call and I'm gonna fulfill that call, whatever that means. And do you know Hudson Taylor did that? And in fact, he wouldn't just give up his own life, but he would give up his wife's life and several of his children's lives serving the people of China. Why? Because he gave his life away to Jesus. And he said, it's no longer I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Lord, what do you want to do with my life? If I had a thousand of them to live, 
what would I do with them? I'd give them to you. And I would, wouldn't change a thing about that, Lord. I would want to serve you all of my days. You know, Hudson Taylor had such a passion for um, lost people that he wasn't comfortable in his own country, in England there. He said that, he said this, he said, can all the Christians in England still sit still with folded arms while these multitudes are perishing? Perishing for lack of knowledge? For lack of the knowledge which England possesses so richly? That's a profound statement. Something you think about when he would walk and observe the Christians in his own culture and he would see there was such a complacency to just sit back and ride comfortably in the culture that they were living with no care in the world about the lost. That's how he felt. I don't know how true that is, but that's how he felt. That's what he saw. And I would suggest that that's in our culture as well. There are always people that are coasting in Christ, but we're not called to coast in Christ. We're called to live for Christ, to do whatever the Lord calls us to do in our lives. Anyone who had a heart for Christ like Hudson Taylor would also have a heart for the lost. To understand that, you know, we have something to give people. Whether they receive it or not is a whole different story. But the fact that I have the words of life, the fact that I can change uh, you know, that by what I say in a moment that a person's eternal uh, address can change is weighty. It's profound when you think of it. The question is, am I going to give it out? Am I going to live for the Lord like Hudson Taylor? Am I going to have a passion for lost people? I think if you love Jesus, you will have a heart for lost people. I think, you know, if you love Jesus in the right ways, you're going to love the things that Jesus loves and you're going to hate the things that Jesus hates. And I think one of the things, the, the primary thing that Jesus came for, guess what, was you and me. He came for us. He loves lost people. And so if we want to live for Christ, that means we need to have a passion for lost people. There's no one that knows this better than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul from the point he got saved, gave his life to Christ and he lived for Christ until he died. He gave himself over to Christ. If Paul could tell you what he would spend his thousand lives on, he would say the same thing Hudson Taylor said, but he would say, I would do it for the lost. He understood his call in life. He understood what he was called to. His life, you recall in Acts chapter nine, was wrecked in a beautiful way on the road to Damascus. And he, he never looked back from that moment on. You know, he, he knew his purpose after being saved was to be Christ's chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Acts chapter nine, verse 15. He understood that he was saved and separated and sent to preach salvation. He understood that. And to some degree, you and I are in the same boat. 
Anybody who is a genuine and true Christian has been saved and separated and sent to preach the gospel of salvation to lost people. That's what we're called to do. We're called to go into all the world and make disciples. I say this almost every week. I talk about this subject almost every week, about the great commission, about the call to go. Why? Because that is what we're living for. We live for this. If you're living for Christ, that's what you're doing. Because Christ is about lost people. He wants people to be reconciled to the Father. That's why he came. And so if we're going to be faithful with what God has called us to, then we are going to need to be people who share the gospel. People who go into the world and tell others about Jesus. This was the Apostle Paul from the day that he got saved in Damascus after the blinders came off and after he, his sight was restored, he began to share the gospel. It's like immediate, like, whoa, I gotta tell somebody about what has happened about this great and glorious Jesus Christ who has saved my life. And we know that from there, Paul was uh, brought, he went to Jerusalem, he was kind of, somehow he got hooked up with Barnabas, who was a mitigator, somebody who brought people together, and uh, because of Barnabas, he gained an audience with the apostles in Jerusalem, and Paul told him his story, that he was saved on the road to Damascus when he was going to persecute Christians. He was living the exact opposite way, killing Christians and, and stuff, and now he's telling them, look, I've been converted. Jesus Christ has captured my heart, and now I want to live for him. So what does he do? He goes in Jerusalem, you recall, and then uh, he begins to share the gospel with people in the synagogues there in Jerusalem, the same people that killed Stephen. He's sharing with them. He probably came from that synagogue. And it ends up that they also want to kill him. So he sent away for 10 years. He sent away to his hometown in Tarsus. What was he doing in Tarsus? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he was telling people about Jesus, but more than anything, what was happening is Jesus was discipling him. Jesus was speaking to him. Jesus was helping him gain proper understanding of the gospel so that he could be a servant of Jesus Christ, so that he could understand what it is that Jesus had called him to. For 10 years, he sat there, and then when the gospel was received in Antioch of Syria, important to note because there's two Antiochs in our story today, and Antioch of Syria, when the gospel was received there, the brothers in Jerusalem sent Barnabas up there to check it out, to see what was going on. So as they go, they see, Barnabas sees that it is legit, that is a work of God, The Holy Spirit is in place there. Uh, People have gotten saved. Their lives are transforming. They need discipleship. So what happens is he says, hey, I know the guy. And you recall that he goes and gets Paul. And Paul and Barnabas stay there and disciple uh, these new believers in Antioch for a, a, a long time, for a while. I don't know. It probably said I didn't look it up. But But as we ended last week, here's why I tell you all of this. Because the rest of the book of Acts is ultimately about the apostolic ministry of Paul 
and his missionary journeys. If you recall last week, the, the last verse in chapter 12 says this, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So now for the rest of the book of Acts, the primary focus is on the, the missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, which we talked about starts in Antioch, the very first place people were called Christians. And Antioch of Syria becomes a launching pad for missionary work. The Apostle Paul at the helm, being called and sent by the Lord. There's four sections here that I want to show you this morning in our scripture. First, we find the separation, then the sending, then the preaching, and finally the response. Let's look at the separation first. We read the verses. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers. This tells us right away that the church is organizing. It's organic. It's not like, you know, Peter and James came up from Jerusalem and said, okay, now let's set up a council and let's do all these things. The Holy Spirit was just working. People were walking in their gifting and prophets and teachers surfaced. It was a natural thing. That's what happens in the body of Christ when people walk in the Holy Spirit is the gifts of the Spirit begin to be used. And, you know, oftentimes that subject matter is so controversial because the Holy Spirit has been blamed for all kinds of craziness, number one, but in chaoticness. But here, we find just organic organization happening. Like, people are just stepping into roles, and they're, uh, they're just doing the work of the ministry. Here we find five different people that fit in that realm of prophet teachers. Barnabas, whom we we're talking about, he is uh, the son of encouragement. He is the guy that brought Paul to the the apostles in Jerusalem and all of, all of that kind of thing. We know who he is. Uh, secondly, we read about a man named Simeon who's also called Niger, which in the Latin means black. Uh, many people believe that uh, Simeon was uh, the one who carried uh, the, the cross for Jesus because he was from Cyrene. And so, yeah, which is Northern Africa. Could be the case. We don't know. We see Lucius of Cyrene here. We don't know anything other than where he's from. Again, northern Africa. Don't know if he's white or black or whatever. Is he Jewish? We don't know. And then we find Menea, who, uh, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who is also known as Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one uh, by whom John the Baptist was beheaded. He was also the one that Jesus was brought before in trial. That's this Herod. Apparently, this man and Herod were foster brothers. He grew up in the same household as him and, uh, you know, all these kinds of things. This is, this is a motley crew of people, folks. And I think that is the point. I think what it shows here is that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what background you have. It doesn't matter what race or, or color or what economical status you have or, or social status or any of that. It doesn't matter what your ESG score is or any of that, any of that stuff. Because Jesus brings people together. And this is a reflection of the diversity of the body of Christ. Just like we see here today. There's such diversity in people. You know, there's people in this crowd that would never be in the same room together except for Christ. Except for Jesus. That you wouldn't even 
ever cross paths with some people in this room, but because you are a Christian, the Lord has brought them into your life. Isn't it amazing to see the diversity in the body of Christ and getting to know people and to hear their stories and to hear how God was working in their life and all these kinds of things? What there wasn't in the early church was a bunch of segregation. Oh, we need to have a black church and then we need to have a Chinese church and then a Korean church and then all these other kinds of churches. Now, granted, I understand that some of that, the reasons for that are language barriers, right? I mean, that makes sense. But there is no reasoning behind any of all that. We're supposed to be diverse people. We're supposed to be a group of diverse people that come together and and we love each other right where we are. And we have, um, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Guess what? You're going to spend eternity together. You're going to spend all of heaven together with everybody who's a believer. So you might as well get used to them now. Yeah? But, But it's just amazing to see the Lord doing this work. God is a God of order, and he's a God of structure, and he does these things. But, you know, we, we, we can't put him in a box, but, but he does work oftentimes in just the normal ways that you would think things should go. I mean, God has given us a brain, and although our thoughts are not like his thoughts exactly, he, we do have a framework to work with. And God says, hey, it, it, the church needs a little order. It needs to be diverse and all these kinds of things. And we see this happening here. Notice, this body has gathered together for the purpose of worshiping and fasting. These should be uh, the, the corporate things that happen when we gather together. There should be worshiping and, and fasting. You know, we just finished 21 days of prayer and fasting. It was a great time as we got together. And, and, and uh, we had a, a, a remnant of our church that did it. What, what, man, it, it is amazing the, the great things that the Lord does through times of corporate prayer and fasting. When you just sit at the Lord's feet and you're see- seeking Jesus together, you know, and, and you're just, there's just one common goal and that is, Lord, we, we wanna know you more. We wanna, we wanna hear from you clearly. We want direction and guidance in our life. That is the purpose of fasting, is to separate yourself unto whatever it is. Food generally is the biblical concept of fasting, but it can be all kinds of stuff. Separate yourself from, from media. And all, I mean, in this day and age, we have all kinds of distractions in our lives. And, and what we're supposed to do is when we fast, is we set apart that time that whatever we would be doing, if it was, would be eating, then we would spend that time seeking God. We would seek his face and we would, you know, when the hunger pains come, we would be reminded, I'm giving up the flesh, Lord, that I would know you in a more intimate way. And that's the purpose of it. And if you've never fasted before, I encourage you to. Jesus said, when you fast. Which means we should be, that should be something that we do on a regular basis in our lives. It should be something that, you don't look like you fast, pastor. I know, I'm working on it. But, but the point is, we, we should be. It's something that we should adopt on a regular basis of, of fasting. Don't make it legalistic. But it's something that we should be doing corporately. That's why we do it once a year. Just as a corporate thing. And then if there are special times where we really feel like we need guidance from God, then we will call for a corporate fast. And you're welcome to join us in that because it's a, it's a great time of seeking God together. They were fasting, which means they were seeking God's face. Number two, they were worshiping. Now, this word doesn't mean that they were, they had, you know, 
the worship band from Jerusalem up there and they were all hands up, you know, lights on, you know, this big, that wasn't what, it, that's not what it means. Do you know what it means here in this, in the Greek worship, the word worshiping? It means they were ministering. They were ministering to who? To the Lord. How do you minister to God? How do you minister to the Lord? The same way the Levites did in the old covenant, in the temple. Remember, they were called to be the ministers of the Lord. They were called to put their hand, they all had jobs and that was their worship to God. God, here's my worship. It's with my hands, it's with my mind, it's with my mouth, it's with my feet, it's with everything that I am, I'm worshiping you. And I'm giving myself to you. And we, we've turned uh, you know, worship into something different. We've turned worship into an event that we show up for and then we leave. But worship is a lifelong ministering to the Lord for all the days of your life. That's what worship is. It can include singing songs to God. Certainly it does. Music is powerful and God uses that. But oftentimes when I think, when, when people use the word worship in our culture today, it means a whole bunch of things to a whole bunch of different people, doesn't it? But in this culture, it meant you were ministering to God. You know, I wonder in this culture if they didn't go around, you know, we say in our culture, hey, God bless. God bless. I wonder if their culture, they didn't go around and say, bless God, bless God. It's a different mentality, isn't it? When I start to think about how can I bless God? You know how you bless God? By ministering, by worshiping. When, when it blesses God, I promise you, it blesses God when you are ministering to somebody on his behalf. It blesses God when you share the gospel with people. It blesses him that you would be faithful to be his voice box in this culture. It blesses him when you do that. Minister to the Lord. They were worshiping and fasting. And through this whole process, what happens is the Holy Spirit speaks. And you can expect when you are worshiping and fasting the Lord that the Holy Spirit will speak. He will speak. You're seeking the Lord. It's about him. It's about seeking his will. It's about knowing what he wants you to do. And the Lord will direct your steps. The Holy Spirit says, separate apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's important to note who's doing the separating here. It's not man. It's not like, you know, uh, Manea and, and, and Simon and these guys are saying, hey, let's, uh, let's separate somebody out here. Who, who should we get, you know, kind of thing. No, that's not what's happening. The Holy Spirit is the one that separates. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who sends. The Holy Spirit is the one who equips. He's the one that uh, does all the work of the ministry post-salvation. Jesus' job was to reconcile you between Father and, and he, was, he came to be the reconciler for you. His blood pays for your sins to wash you clean so that you can be made right before the Father. Then Jesus said, it's your benefit that I go away. It's your benefit that I go away that I'll send a helper to you and he will be your comforter. He'll be your teacher. He'll be your, your empowerment. He'll be your gift giver. He'll give you all that you need to live 
for Christ. He'll give you everything that you need for that. It's through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's ultimately what the book of Acts is all about. The work of the Holy Spirit through man. And God wants to do the same work in and through you that he's doing through these guys. But first and foremost, it's him that separates people. Listen, when, when, we, uh, when we, we watch people in the body of Christ and we pray, and it's so interesting how the Lord will put certain people on our hearts, like, the, you know, myself or some of the elders here, and we'll be like, yeah, this guy right here, I think the Lord, the Lord keeps putting him on my heart. He's got some, you know, the Lord's doing something in this guy's life. And so then we, we start to, to talk to these people. We don't ever tell them what's up. We just are watching because guess what? We don't want to get in the way of what God is doing because this is a work of the Holy Spirit. But we observe and we watch. And then at some point, the, the Holy Spirit inevitably will say, I want this guy to be an elder here at this church. I want this guy to be, you know, a pastor. I want you to ordain this guy. This guy's going to be a missionary. I want you to send him out. And so we'll, we'll watch and we'll pray. And when the Lord then separates them under the work that he has for them, then we'll do exactly what they do in this picture, and that is that they, bring, they all come together and they lay their hands on them and they send them out. Why do they lay their hands on them? What is the point of this? Is there, is there, is there some power in man laying hands on man or something like that? What, what, is the, what is the point of that? The point is to identify. It's a symbol that's saying God's hand is upon this person. Not my hand, but this is God's hand that's upon this person. We're acknowledging what God is doing in the life of this person. And so when we ordain an elder or we ordain a pastor and stuff like that, we'll bring them up and we'll, we'll present them before the body and, and such. And then at some point, we will, the elders and I will gather together, we'll lay hands on that person and we will pray over them, recognizing the appointment of God. We're not making anybody anything. Listen, I don't care if you go to seminary. I don't care, um, you know, who you have a piece of paper from that says you're a pastor. If God didn't call you, it doesn't matter because you're not in his eyes. It's God who appoints. It's the Holy Spirit who separates people for the work of ministry. And I would say this morning, you know, for everybody in this room, he has separated you to something. Like there is, there is a, in a sense, everybody's separated for something. The Lord, the Holy Spirit wants to use you uniquely in the body of Christ. He wants to use you uniquely in the culture. And so he will separate you. You know, most of the time I think we, we miss his voice though, because we're not seeking him in that way. You know, when's the last time you you purposely be, just begin to seek the Lord that in sacrifice, meaning, you know, you're getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning or whatever, or you're staying up late and you're just saying, God, I'm just gonna spend this time seeking you to understand what your will for my life is. I need to know, Lord, what it is that you're calling me to and that you are steadfast in that. Not, I'm not talking about, you know, the, hey, Lord, it's uh, 5 a.m. and uh, I'm about to get some coffee. Uh, I was just wondering if you could, Maybe just tell me what your will is for my life. Okay, amen. You know, it's like, it's easy to do those kind of things, but I'm talking about seeking him with diligence, fervently. When I begin to do that, and, and I can't, I don't remember, to be honest with you, how long it was, but, but I was doing it just because I love the Lord. 
I was just like, Lord, I, want, I know there's something more. And maybe that speaks to somebody in this room today. Like, you know there's something more. And, and the Lord would call you to separate and just to take time to just sit at his feet. And that's what I began to do. Early in the morning before I went to work, I'd just get up at like 5 a.m., go into my closet, literally, with my guitar and I would, with my Bible, and I would just sit there and read and sing, and I would just wait on God. And I don't know, I did that for a long time. And then finally, one day, the Lord just said, hey, I'm calling you. I'm calling you into ministry. And then I tried to figure all that out. You know how you like to help God out? Okay, I know what you need. I know, I know what you mean, Lord. Now I'm going to go ahead and take it over from here. You know, and then I started trying to figure out what seminary I was supposed to go to and all these different types of things. And you know what the Lord, the Lord said, dude, can you chill? The Lord ever tell you that? Like, dude, chill. Seriously. You're getting on my nerves. He didn't say that, but, but he, you know, sometimes when he calls you, it doesn't necessarily mean for that moment, does it? doesn't mean that he's calling you to go make, take action right the second. Sometimes it does, but that's where you need to use discernment. Anyway, long story short, the Holy Spirit is the one that appoints. He's the one that separates. It's his job to do these things, and that's what we see in our, our uh, picture here in the word of God, and they laid hands on them, and then they sent them out, which brings us to our second section, the sending, verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for, some, for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Barnabas and Saul are now being sent out from Antioch of Syria. They go south, southeast, just 16 miles uh, to Seleucia. From there, they jump on a boat. They go 60 miles into the Mediterranean, right off the coast of Syria there, uh, to, to the place of Cyprus, which happens to be Barnabas' hometown. And uh, so the Lord sends Barnabas to Cyprus, back to his hometown, and of course, everybody gets saved because Barnabas shows up, and he's like, oh, Barnabas, where have you been? Oh, I got saved. Oh, well, tell us about Jesus. That's not how it went. Isn't that, is that how it went for you? When you went back to your hometown and then, and then everybody was like, oh, that's so great, you're saved. Right? That's not how it works, is it? Most of the time, people are appalled that you're saved. Most of the time, you're rejected in your hometown. Are you not? Jesus was. Do you know that? That was one of the first places he went. 
after he was commissioned in ministry. It makes sense to go to your hometown. It makes sense to go and try and reach the people you know. Totally makes sense. That's, that's a, a, a simple thing. The Lord drew him to a place that he already was very familiar with. So he brings him there. And when they arrive at Sal- the, the port there, Salamis, and proclaim the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, this would become the standard operating procedure for the Apostle Paul. Whenever he would go to a new place, the first place he would go is to a synagogue. Why? Because that's where the people are that would be probably the closest to coming to Christ, you would think, because Jesus is their Messiah. Like the Jews are looking for the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was coming. It would make sense then to logically go, okay, if I show up in a town I know nobody, where do I go? Well, a synagogue would be a great place to go, especially if you were the Apostle Paul and you understood you were a master of the law and now you're a master of grace. So he would go to the synagogues and preach to the Jews there. And it says that they would go through the whole island. And then it happens. Of course, they face opposition. Listen, anytime you step out and you begin to walk in the will of the Lord and you begin to do what God's calling you to do, uh, you can expect opposition. You can expect the enemy to oppose the work that you're trying to do. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, amen? We don't have to worry about the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, but we do need to be aware of it. And we do need to understand that whenever it is that we're trying to fulfill the will of God in our lives, we do know that there will be opposition. Like it shouldn't surprise you if people are, are ugly with you. And, you know, that you face uh, all kinds of different um, persecutions and things. But they did it to Jesus. Of course they're going to do it to you. Here, these guys, uh, as they begin to work their way through uh, this island, they come upon a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Really, his name, Bar-Jesus, means son of Jesus. Uh, he's also called uh, Ilimus here as well, and... He is, in, he is really a vessel of the enemy, of the devil. How do we know? Because Paul tells him that. He says, you're a son of the devil. Hey, you know, Jesus said that to the Jews too, right? Because they were also being vessels of the devil at some point in time. They were allowing that satanic influence to, uh, to, to they were allowing the enemy to use them to stand in opposition of what God was trying to do. This guy probably was all about himself, trying to make a name for himself. Listen to, look at how he aligns himself. Oh, let me just get close to the proconsul here, and then I'll begin to control him and help him make decisions. Do you not see that in our culture? Do you not see the, the satanic alignment in, in the, the, the realm of politics and how that works? The enemy is not unique in the way that he works, folks. You can read in the word of God, and he has the same playbook. He's got the same playbook. He does the same things over and over again. Paul, um, understanding the, the idea of this guy being a vessel for the enemy, he calls him out right away, and he says, you're a son of the devil. And he not only says that, but then he says, you're an enemy of all righteousness, like you can tell somebody's working on the, on the dark side, working for the dark side when they want to legislate things against righteousness. They want to approve the things that are unrighteous. 
Not only that, but look at, he says, you're full of deceit and villainy. Who's the father of lies? Listen to this. You, uh, will you not stop making crooked the paths, the straight paths of the Lord? What does he mean? That mean, he, what he means is that there is a road called straight street. And it's a direct line to the Lord Jesus. Or it's a direct line to the Father through the Lord Jesus. There's a door on that road. And his name is Jesus. And you go through the door. And now you're on straight street. And it's a narrow path. And it's a difficult way. But you're on the right road. The crooked path means that you're, you're, you're basically saying, I don't care if you're on the road that you're trying to journey your way to God just as long as it's a crooked road that doesn't get you there. In other words, the enemy could care less if you worship God. Any God, anything you want, as long as it's not the one and true living God. In other words, that's why there's so many religions out there, and the enemy loves that people are just trying to find their way to God. They won't find their way to God on a crooked path because there's one way, and it's a straight path. And Paul says the enemy, what he does is he confuses people with all these, um, all these turns and obstacles that get in the way. And the gospel is so simple. And it says that God sent his son Jesus to pay the price for you. All you have to do is surrender your life to him. It's a straight path. Direct to God through his son. And he says, when will you stop making the path crooked, bar Jesus? When will you stop being an enemy of the Lord? Because you are doing these things, now the hand of the Lord is upon you. Now, this is a different kind of hand of the Lord upon you. I, I don't want this kind of hand of the Lord upon me. I don't know about you, but this is the hand of judgment upon uh, the, the life of bar Jesus. And, and Paul goes on to say, you're gonna be blinded for a time, not forever, but you're gonna be blinded for a time. And, um, and what's astonishing about this is the Lord uses this entire thing to draw Sergius Paulus to himself. Is this crazy? You have the enemy right there standing in opposition, but who wins? God wins, because guess what? God always wins. The enemy cannot thwart the plan of God. And so the Lord uses all of this situation, uh, you know, to draw Sergius Paulus to himself. Now, here's what I'll say is he saw this happen right before his eyes. Like, you're going to be blind, boom. The, all of a sudden, bar Jesus is blind. And the proconsul sees this. He, he watches this. And it no doubt, all of a sudden, took his, his um, willingness to hear the message to a different level, if you know what I mean. Like all of a sudden he was like intent, like, okay, wait a second. Can you tell me that message again? It wasn't because of what happened that he believed. That's not what the text says. The text says, look at this. He was astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord. Here's the point. The point is this, that God uses miracles to grab a hold of people to open their heart up for the message. That's what he does. Faith doesn't come by miracles and by seeing miracles. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the Lord uses miracles to prep the heart, to draw people, to get their attention so that the word can go forward and people's lives can be changed. 
And that's exactly what happened here. He utilized this whole situation um, so that the Apostle Paul can come in with a message of salvation. So this guy can understand that there is a way to heaven and his name is Jesus Christ, that his sins can be forgiven, that, that he can go from dead to alive in an instant if he will just call upon the Lord Jesus. So he does. And it says that he, he, he saw that he was astonished at the teaching of Jesus. He believed. This brings us to our third section, the preaching. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga of Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on the, from Perga and came to Antioch of Poseidon, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So uh, just right up above this, it, to, it told us something important about Saul, that he first, beca- he first became Paul. He was called Paul then, right above this, and Paul is actually his Roman name. Something's changed between verse 12 and 13 here. If you take note of the way that 13 says now Paul and his companions every time before this it's Barnabas and Saul Barnabas and Saul but now all of a sudden it's Paul and his companions you know why because the apostle Paul is stepping into his ministry at this point he is an apostle he's called to be the leader and so Barnabas was a vessel God was using he was a disciple of the Lord he was using him to prep the, uh, Paul for his apostolic ministry, and that's exactly what happened. Now, all of a sudden, he becomes, he becomes called Paul, and now it's Paul and his companions. No longer is it Barnabas and Saul. And I'm thanking God for that because I'm tired of saying Saul, okay? Just so you're, it's confusing to me. It's probably confusing to you. Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul, but now we're, it's just gonna be purely Paul or the apostle Paul, praise God. So here we find Paul, stepping into his ministry. He's, it's now about him. It tells us that um, John Mark, uh, as they moved on and they set sail for Paphos when they came to uh, here, they, they, uh, to Perga, they, John Mark left them. And the reason why is because in this area where they landed, where they docked, it was a lower coastland region where malaria was really uh, prevalent in this time and day. And there's lots of places, and even in our day, where malaria is prevalent, right? But many people believe when Paul landed there, he got malaria. And that was the thorn in his flesh that, you know, when he talks about his, something about his eyes, you know, that he's, he, can't, he, he wished that he could see kind of thing, um, that, that it was probably due to malaria. And that he probably got malaria here. And what we know happens there in this region is that Paul and his companions are pushed up to Antioch of Poseidon, which is in the southern region of Galatia. You ever read the book of Galatians? This is the region that he's talking about. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Paul makes reference of this. He said, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. It was kind of a situation where he somehow got sick when he landed, and it was a, some body that ailment, maybe it was his eyes or whatever, <clears throat> and, and he, which pushed him up into this region of uh, Antioch of Poseidon, which was not an easy journey. 
It was a difficult journey. It was a mountainous journey with cliffs and all these kind of things. And so Paul makes his way up there. John Mark bails on them in this moment. Why did he bail? Was it because he's afraid of malaria? Maybe. Was it because he didn't want to make the, the difficult journey to, to Antioch of Poseidon? Maybe. Was it because Barnabas was his cousin and now all of a sudden it was Paul and his companions? We don't know. Could be. But here's what we do know. That whatever happened created such a disdain for John Mark and Paul's heart, then in Acts 15, when Barnabas wants to take John Mark on their second missionary journey, Paul says, oh, no way. Not a chance in heaven are you taking that guy with us. Not a chance. And they end up splitting as a result of this. Because Barnabas, remember, he's an encourager. He's a person that brings people together. And, and so this becomes a major schism in between their relationship. But, but you know what's awesome? Is God fixes it. And John Mark becomes, uh, you know, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul later in life. But, but here in the short term, whatever happened in this moment when John Mark left, Paul was not happy about it. You know, for whatever reason. And it just goes to show us that, you know, uh, Christians aren't immune to relational problems in, in, in the body of Christ. That happens. But you know what is more important is that we're people that are willing to forgive. People that are willing to reconcile our differences, that are willing to, you know, say, listen, you're a brother in Christ. I'm a brother in Christ. This is not right. We can't let this go on. God does not want a house disunified. And maybe that's a word for you this morning. God wants us to do all that we can to live at peace with all men. He does not want us to be disunified. He wants us to do whatever we can to reconcile with a person. And sometimes that means being the one to swallow the lump that's so difficult to swallow. Hey, listen, reconcile with one another. Be willing to do that. Um, So the Apostle Paul would later do that with him. Tells us here that um, on the Sabbath day when they were there, they they end up going into the synagogue again in Antioch of Poseidon. And after the reading of the Law and Prophets, which is standard in every synagogue, uh, and this is standard as well, the, the, whoever was running the synagogue that day made a big mistake, dude. He said, hey, would you guys like to share something? You know, I mean, like, that would just be like me. Hey, sir, would you like to come up here and share something? And he'd be like, what, me? Yeah, come on up. And then all of a sudden he's just, you never know what's gonna, ha- what's gonna be said. And yet this was standard operating procedure for the synagogue, right? And he asked Paul, do you brothers have a word of encouragement? Boy, do we ever have a word of encouragement for you. Oh, I don't even know where to start. So here we have the opportunity. God opened this door, folks. He could have asked anyone else in the synagogue. But he asked Paul and Barnabas, do you guys have a word of encouragement for the people? And Paul takes this opportunity to preach salvation. Look at verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands, uh, motioned with his hand, said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people 
great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had, uh, when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my, my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to us a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And I can imagine in that moment, like the, the record just scratching, right? And he's like, we were tracking with you. Uh-huh, Abraham, uh-huh. Oh yeah, for sure. What, well, the wilderness, oh yeah. Jesus, what did he just say? Did he just say Jesus? Hold on a second here. You can imagine their response to the Apostle Paul when he says, of this man's offspring. Speaking of David, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus has promised. This is, this is Paul saying Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul begins his word of encouragement with a quick rendition of the history of Israel from Abraham all the way up to Jesus, all the way up to the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah through the lineage of, of David. And Paul is making, he's connecting the dots for them. He's helping them understand how Jesus is the Messiah. It's prophetic. They all know this. They understand this and all of these kinds of things. And they also were looking for Messiah because they thought John might be him. And that's why they went to John the Baptist and they said, hey, who are you? And he said, oh, I'm not the one you're looking for. I preach a, a baptism of repentance. I'm the last of the prophets of the old covenant. I'm not the one you're looking for, but he's coming. Trust me. Paul goes on in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those, who, uh, those of you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the street and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also 
he says also to an, in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the people of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by everyone who believes in freedom, by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul goes into deep gospel territory here. He, he, he takes this to uh, the, the goal line, folks. Like he is saying, listen, uh, your question about if Jesus is really the Messiah and how in the world could, the, could have the religious leaders in Jerusalem missed it is because they don't know the word of God. Jesus told them that. Are you a teacher you, and you don't know these things? Remember he says that to a scribe? Jesus was telling them long before this that they didn't have an accurate understanding of the word of God. And so Paul tells them like, yeah, you know what? Hey, they don't, they don't understand the law and the prophets that's spoken on a regular basis from, the, from every pulpit and every, sa- every um, synagogue and on the Sabbath in Jerusalem and all the region of, all the world. They don't understand these things. And so you know what? In their lack of understanding, they actually inadvertently fulfilled prophecy by rejecting Jesus because he's the, uh, he is the stone that was rejected by the builders. He's the chief cornerstone. He goes on to tell him that, you know, they missed the Messiah. Not only that, but they contributed to his death because they called for his crucifixion. You know, crucify him, they, they would say. And Paul is saying... The reality of this is they don't know the word of God. But here's what you need to know. Jesus is the fulfillment of of the messianic promises. And then he goes on to list many of them. One in particular that's most important is the resurrection of Jesus. He said, you know, David was given a promise that he ought not see corruption. And guess what? David's bones are in a tomb in Jerusalem. It wasn't speaking about David. It was speaking about Messiah. And when Jesus Christ was laid dead in the tomb, guess what? He was risen bodily because when they went to the tomb to find his body, it wasn't there because he rose again from the dead. This was a bona fide fact in this culture, folks. Like this this was, uh, you know, according to Jewish culture, uh, uh, something would become a fact by the witnesses of two or three people. So if they could get two or three witnesses, that was considered a fact. Guess what? This is a fact. Uh, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, that he was, he was appeared to more than 500 brothers at, at a time. Here's the long and the short of it. Here is the point that Paul is getting to. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He's saying the law cannot save you. You know, the law is like a thermometer. When you're sick and you want to see if you're sick, you go to your medicine closet and you grab your thermometer and you put it in your ear or in your mouth or other places. You could choose. And guess what? You look at it and you go, oh, this says I'm sick. Could you imagine if you then went, okay, now heal me. Heal me. I'm sick. Heal me. It can't do it. 
it's its sole purpose is to show you that you're sick. That is the purpose of the law. It's to show you that you're sick, that you've missed the mark. It's, it's really ultimately to condemn you, not to heal you. And Paul is saying there's a way for you to be forgiven. It's through Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Paul gives them the gospel, and it says the next day they wanted to hear more. And uh, the, the whole city gathered together on the next Sabbath. And when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, and they reviled him. And because of that, Paul said, you, um, because you have thrust the gospel, he's speaking about, because you've thrust it aside and you've turned away from it, you're unworthy of eternal life. To reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says that you're unworthy of eternal life. Why? None of us are worthy of eternal life, but it's the gospel of grace that gets us eternal life. But if you reject it, then you're not worthy of eternal life. And he says, we are now going to turn to the Gentiles and be a light to the Gentiles um, that God might use us to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, we're about to close here. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city uh, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Listen, two different responses here. The Gentiles, they're rejoicing, and they're so happy for what the Lord has done. They're, they're glorifying the word of the Lord. They're so grateful for the gospel of grace. They're so grateful that God would include them in on the plan of salvation. And they were, they're grateful to hear those words because it's, it's their words of life to them. And yet, the, the, the Jews who have the, the, the Old Testament, they have the prophetic word and all of this kind of stuff, they reject it. Not only they reject it, but then they want to stamp it out. And it says that they corral up uh, these renowned men and women of the city and they ask for to persecute Paul and uh, Barnabas and get them out of the city. He, they did not want them around. They wanted to hear nothing more about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. And that is still the sentiment for many Jews in this culture today. They do not want to believe in the Messiah Jesus. But notice, the word continued to spread. Nothing can stop the gospel from going forward, folks. Here's the question to you this morning is, will you be a person that is separated unto the work of the Holy Spirit to go and preach the, the gospel of good news to, to those who are poor, those who are poor in spirit, those who are destined for eternal damnation? Will you be God's voice box in this time and day? Listen, be faithful. He's given you words of life. He's given you the capacity to be a, like a Barnabas in a sense, to bring two people together through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ. So be those kind of people, amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, we're just grateful. As many of us in this room are Gentiles, 
and hearing of the word of the Lord this morning, we are rejoicing and we are so, we're glorifying you, Lord, because you've included us in on your plan. So we thank you this morning, Lord. We pray that you would help each of us to know that we are saved, we are separated, we are sent to preach the gospel of salvation to those who are lost. And God, that if we were to be given another thousand lives, that we would do the same thing over and over again, deliver it to your feet to be used as a vessel of you unto death, Lord. Will you help us to be faithful with the ministry that you've given us, Lord? We pray for those in this, in this room today, Lord, that are seeking your will, seeking your face on what it is that you would desire for their lives, that you would, you would separate them, Lord, that you would speak to them, that they would understand your call on their life. But we all have the general call of the Great Commission, and so help us to be faithful with that first, Lord. We pray, God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they come down this, this morning to the altar and that they can be prayed for this morning, that they can give their lives to Jesus, be reconciled to the Father in heaven who, through his Son, Jesus Christ, has made a way for us to be saved. So, Lord, we lift this final moments to you, Lord. We ask you to just move in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.